Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, and for this week's episode, we get to go on location to the studio of Mike Olson, a veteran electronic composer. He gives us the complete rundown of how to make music the old-fashioned analog way, which involves plugging patch cables into a wall of synthesizers, kind of like a switchboard operator. At the end of the episode, you'll get to hear Mike creating sounds on the spot. The envelope generator for the volume is... Look, if I slow the speed down, if I can, that's coming in slow, and I can make it hold, now it's all connected. In our talk, Mike gives tips on improving the acoustics of your home studio, and we also get to hear how Mike created a sound art piece out of Donald Rumsfeld's ums. No, no, Just a couple announcements before we start. One, if you're in Minnesota, come check out our Halloween Reads concert this Saturday, November 1st. The Twin Cities Trio will be playing new compositions submitted by you listeners. It starts at 5 p.m. in the Underground Music Cafe in St. Paul. And there'll also be a prize for the most creatively carved pumpkin, music-themed. So bring one in. Secondly, you have just over two weeks to submit a flute choir piece for our next quest. Check composerquest.com quest12 for details. Thirdly, this podcast is supported by listeners like you. If you're interested in helping me out, visit composerquest.com patron. Thanks. You can find all the Composer Quest episodes on iTunes or at ComposerQuest.com. Feel free to get in touch with me by emailing me, charlie at ComposerQuest.com, or find Composer Quest on Facebook or Twitter. Now, let's get on to my talk with Mike Olson. Mike, thanks for having me here in your uh, not-so-humble abode. <laughs> my pleasure, Charlie. Tell me about how this studio came together, because this this is probably the most elaborate studio I've had a interview in. Uh, <laughs> well, it's um, what we're sitting in right now is a control room for the studio, and it's built into a room that is two stories high. It's actually the same height as the it is the width. So it's about twenty feet high, about twenty feet wide. And it was just, um, at the time when I bought this building, maybe 25 years or more ago, this was the building I could afford. <laughs> but we really made it work, and it, it looks very beautiful, and it's very, sonically, very, very accurate. It's a really nice room to work in. One a composer friend of mine who uh, listens to things here, and he's uh, he refers to this as the microscope. <laughs> he would bring things in here to listen to them so he can hear all the problems that it, with his uh, audio. And it is kind of like that. You can really hear um, a, a lot of detail. So for someone who can't quite afford to make this kind of studio yet, um, what <laughs> would you say are the most important things when you're like treating a room? Well, there's two issues. There's, there's the sound transmission within a structure. Um, like So you don't want to hear the furnace or you don't want to hear the refrigerator running. Mechanical systems that set up vibrations in the building, uh, 
and then it travels in the building and it resonates on the walls and you hear it. Um, that's one issue. Or like if you get a lot of traffic, um, then the other thing is the acoustical performance of the room itself, how the room sounds once you've kind of isolated it. And then it's the questions of absorption and diffusion. And you're always wanting some kind of a blend of that. You have to consider the shape of the room and you're trying to avoid a lot of parallel surfaces. So mm. we've got like diffusion where the sound is breaking up and absorption. The easier thing to do is absorption. So people tend to just put a ton of foam in it and put a bunch of absorption. The problem with that is you're absorbing all the high frequencies because they're very easy to absorb and you will not really be absorbing the low frequencies. Mm. So the room just gets bassy. And that's not accurate, and that's not what your recording is. Mm -hmm. You want a flatter response in the room. You want the room to be kind of showing you everything. So if you're going to, the sound will reflect. There's sound reflecting in here, but it's breaking all up so that it's, you don't perceive specific surfaces in the sound. Like if you look in the ceiling here, you see all these big wooden panels we have, the big four by four panels. Each one is aimed at a different spot. Each one, and if you look, kind of you look at it, the center is all lower, and it's all so, and the sides are all further up, right? So the sound is pushing, the sound hits that, and it pushes away. We're making all these nice hand gestures that the audience can see, <laughs> but it, it, you can think of like a, it's sort of convex in a sense, even yeah. though it's made up of multiple faceted surfaces. So the sound hits that, and it breaks apart. So what would it take to absorb? bass frequencies thicker more just like if i had r more room in this building behind the couch you're sitting on which is directly behind everything the monitors and everything i if i could do like four or five feet of absorption mm, you know that would that would do it people do that you know if you've mm. got the room for it you don't have to use foam for all that you probably wouldn't you can do uh you can build things that are you know it's like a big cavity it just absorbs you know and then you have a really you don't it doesn't bounce around the diffuser behind you is an RPG diffractal diffuser. That's somewhat expensive. That's built on an actual physical model. But I got it from another studio that went out of business. Actually, if I knew I was going to have it, I would have built it into the wall and a little bit lower. But right now, behind you in that wall, there's a, in the, that's another thing we could mention as far as isolation. There's an elaborate maze of air ducts built out of uh, ductboard, which is an absorptive, sound-absorbing uh, ducting material. And you build up these mazes of that, and then the sound travels through that, and then when it comes out, you know, if the fan is on on the furnace, you can't hear it. You know, you can put your head right up to that that air register, and you can't hear anything. You just feel air coming out. Because hmm. air handling is the thing that's just the bane of my existence. I mean, there's so many times you try to do location somewhere. If you can't get them to shut their air handling off, and it's a quiet room, that's all you're going to hear. It's, yeah. just, it's just amazing how loud it can be yeah. you know, when you're trying to record something, particularly if it's soft at all. I kind of lucked out that I um, am living in a house that's really old mm -hmm. and doesn't have any... So it's furnaces. It, it's, uh, it's, it's radiators. Uh, radiators, yep. yeah. And if they make noise, you can shut them off or whatever. Yeah. If they start banging on you or something. Yeah. <laughs> Stick a mic on it and use yeah. it. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about your music. I think the first time I was introduced to your music is with your piece Breathing Voltages, which you just finished up. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit about how you started that project? 
Okay, that's a, a piece that's made on analog modular synthesizer equipment. I happen to have a, a vintage Moog modular synthesizer, relatively small one. For people who don't know what a modular synth uh, is. So what? anybody who ever remembers the old switched on Bach or Walter, Wendy, Carlos, or those old images of, of synthesizers that look like a big... Um, panel with all kinds of knobs and, and cords patching all over one cord going from one point to another all over they call them like patch cords and that term patch has come down to the years it's still the, the term that's used for a synthesizer sound is generally referred to as a patch even though even with more digital synthesizers don't have patch cords but they still use that term so um, each module has a specific function in generation of or manipulation of uh, sound. And um, I don't know how far you want to go into that, but, um, well, you know, it gets... It hasn't been talked about on the podcast it, okay. yet, so it's so okay So in the most uh, general terms, I'll try to be very overviewish. So you have uh, a sound source in the traditional analog world is an oscillator that generates an electronic tone that is on an, uh, a pure waveform shape. So if you put it on an oscilloscope, you would see this waveform. And it would be like a sine wave, which is a real kind of a ooh kind of a sound. Or a, a square wave, which actually shapes a square. Or a pulse wave, which we're, what they're doing is changing the width of that square so that it gets more and more tight like a little rectangle. Or a sawtooth wave, which is like you would think a saw. Or a reverse sawtooth wave, which is just with the teeth the other way. Or a triangle wave, which is just like a pyramid. And those are kind of standard waveforms. And uh, they all have a different sound. They all have different harmonic content. The sine wave has no harmonics at all. It just sounds like a pure tone, like a test tone. If you ever hear, you know, a test tone on a... used to hear them every once in a while on, you know, television. I rarely hear them now, but um, just a pure sine wave. And then the others have different harmonics, more or less harmonic content, and different... I guess technical really quick, different amplitudes for the different harmonics. So how loud those harmonics are against the over the fundamental pitch changes the color of the sound. So it's why an E sounds different than an OO. So if mm -hmm. I go, if I just do, all I'm doing, the pitch is staying all the same, and all, all those different sounds are, I'm just changing the amplitudes of the overtones over that fundamental pitch. So when you hear a synthesizer go, you know, it's what it's using an, another module called the filter, which is changing how those overtones are, are handled. They're, it's cutting or boosting different amplitudes uh, of the overtones over the fundamental pitch. Mm -hmm. Getting too technical. So you have an oscillator that generates a real pure tone that doesn't go, it just sounds like E or O or whatever it sounds like, one sort of thing. And then there's a filter. In the traditional world, in the Moog world, <clears throat> it's always subtractive synthesis. So it starts with everything, and then you're taking away. So a filter will, will filter out frequencies. And then the other thing would be <clears throat> an amplifier that just, you know, amplifies the sound so that you can use it. So the most simple bit modules 
oscillator, filter, amplifier, and the way you control those is with something called an envelope generator. And the envelope generator sends out control voltage. So what it can do is affect, like if you apply it to an amplifier, you can say how quick does the sound start and how long does it hold when I let go of a, a key on the, on the keyboard or how does it change over time. So it's like it sends out a voltage that's varying over time. So if you set it so it has a real slow attack, then the sound will come in. It'll come in real slow. If you set it real quick, it'll go. It'll come in right away. On my simple Moog that I have, there's two of them. One I always have to the and to the amplifier, just for like I was describing, and I put the other one to the filter. So the filter will change over time. So that's that. I can have it, you know, change in some way over time. Analog, you know, got all replaced by digital because it made so much sense. Because you can save stuff with digital. You can pull this patch back up and it's the same mm -hmm. the next time. But this modular stuff, you just bump the cords and it's different. I mean, you just turn it on, back on and off, it's going to be different. It's never the same and you can't save anything. Very ephemeral. You record it. You get something you like, record it. Because it's not going to be the same again. But what's happened is everybody went to, it all kind of went to digital, it all went to computer control for very logical reasons. I certainly did that. It, it just was makes sense. But I always had my Moog, and I always had a mini Moog, which is a, one of the very first synthesizers ever made that didn't have patch chords. But it's mm. very old. It's a vintage instrument. Sounds wonderful. Those old instruments sound better than anything. I, it's different, but if the things that it does, I can't do the warmth and beauty of those old instruments. There's a million simulations of it online. There's, you know, there's virtual versions. They're, they sound similar. They're, they sound nice, but they're not the same thing. And so now there's this whole new wave of all of these new manufacturers. It's everybody else. What I found out is I'm not the only one. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's all these other people. Everyone wants a Moog Modular. They're just extremely expensive now. I mean, mine's worth way, way more than I paid for it. I've had it restored. And I'll never sell it. And you can't get them. Even if you're wealthy and you can afford it, it's just you can't. They're, if they come up for sale, it's going to be an auction. It's going to be tens of thousands of dollars. And they're going to be very, very expensive. But now there's all these other manufacturers building things. And it ranges in price and it can get expensive. But a lot of them, are the mod, individual modules are very inexpensive. And they work together. And I have a setup here where I've got my Moog modular right next to a bunch of Eurorack modules and some other, another format called 5U, which is the same size as the old Moog modules. But all of this stuff works together. You just need cords that have different kind of plugs on them, but you can, they'll, they'll work together. So what's happened with that is for me, it's extremely expanded what I can do on the Moog. I'm kind of curious because I've never seen anyone actually work with the patch 
bays as mm-hmm. they're creating music. Mm-hmm. How does your creative process work as you're actually like well, making music? Well, that's another thing that's really interesting about this technology is because unlike, you know, with a thing where it's just got a million presets and you're kind of flipping through presets, this, you have to kind of know what you want. And I, I know enough basics, you know, I say, okay, it's gonna, I'm going to start with this waveform, I'm going to go to this filter, da, 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 da. kind of working on getting it going. But you're always listening to it as you go. And what happens is, you all, always happens, I think, is you start to hear, depending, if you're doing something, if I'm doing something really basic and I know totally what it is, I'm going to get there pretty quickly and then it's going to be what I thought, pretty much. But what quite often happens, a lot of the time, is you're starting to do, trying to do something a little more complicated and you find something you weren't expecting. You know, all of a sudden it's doing a sound. Whoa, that's interesting. You're only partway to your sound. Your patching isn't done yet. And at some intermediate step, all of a sudden it's doing something that you weren't expecting. That sounds really interesting. That's really cool. And then so you, go, you don't want to continue oh, on. because Yeah, like or that. it changes. Then you start to go a different direction. Or you And you got to remember, you might lose it. And like in Breathing Voltages, this piece you heard, there's this thing of this little random melodies that are coming and going. I thought that sounded so cool. And it wasn't what I was setting out to do. When the random selection of notes would repeat a note, since it's not re-triggering the filter, you'd perceive it as just a held note. So you would be getting, like, you're getting a bunch of eighth notes, every once in a while you get a quarter note. You may even get a dotted quarter note every once in a while, where it's just holding, because this happens to be repeating. And that added another level of interest to it, to me. And... So not at all what I was setting out to do, you know. And I luckily recorded some of that before I moved on to toward what I was trying to get to and ended up kept coming back to that in the material when I was working with it in the computer. I tend to record a lot of stuff to the computer and then I build my pieces there. So as I'm working later in the computer, I keep coming back to this thing I recorded of that. I said, Man, that is, I could just listen to that by itself. I just really liked it. Mm-hmm. And it's totally ephemeral. I mean, I could now I know kind of how it happened. I could get back to something close to it, but it'll never be the same. It'll never be the exact same thing that I got that day. Mm-hmm. And there's some forums online that I, I visit. And this whole idea of the ephemeral nature of working with this technology is it's a you know it's just the way it is. So you have to just embrace it. And there's no point in being frustrated with it. It's like being frustrated that the sky is blue. I mean, it's blue, you know. So how some people approach it, there's, it's almost like a spiritual practice. So they'll work, they're just doing it for themselves. And they'll sit there and they'll work on a very elaborate patch. They may spend weeks or even months, they keep coming back to it and adjusting it and working on it and trying to get, they're going somewhere with it and they're getting to something that they like. And they finally get what they really like. And it's a lot of these are self-generative and that they're, it's just playing itself. But it's going through all kinds of random operations and splitting off and doing all kinds of things. It's like you're creating this big environment of sound. So you, yeah. someone will work a long time on a thing like that. And then 
they finally get it to where they don't want to change it anymore and they'll just listen to it for a while. Maybe they'll listen to it on and off for a day or two or an hour or two and then they'll just completely unplug it all. It's like a sand painting. You know, like huh. a, uh, the, just, the point was the process of getting there and then getting to this thing you liked. And then they're going to make another one. You know, And they're not recording it. They're not really making it for anyone else. They're just doing it because they're interested in it. I don't do that. <laughs> I record. <laughs> you like saving I want to your... make a piece. In yeah. The end. But uh, that's embracing that temporal quality of it. Is that you know you just know, you know you just have all these patch cords sticking out. You know these cables are looping all over. You can just go up and just kind of brush the cables a little bit. And sometimes it'll change it. If it changes the connection a little bit, the resistance in a control voltage, not an audio signal, but a control voltage, it will the value will change a little bit, and so. It's the control voltage will change and something will be different and mm. it won't you'll alter. You see clips of people every once in a while with a module and they'll just come along and they're gonna brush it with their hands as they're listening to it, you know, to see what you know, how stable is it right now. You mm. know. And okay, all right, it's still doing the same thing. So how do you when you're thinking about putting a piece together, how do you conceptualize like how you limit the sounds? Because yeah, like if yeah. you can get any sort of random sound you... Right. Well, it's just like any composition. I mean, we can do anything, right? So you need the freedom of limits. And that's also... That's Stravinsky, actually. Freedom of limits. And I think that establishing meaningful limitations is very important and very freeing. And then, you know, you can deviate from your limits (laughs) if the piece requires it. But um, I always have some sort of idea that I'm kind of going after you know, and then I'll, I might impose certain limits. I'll say, well, I'm only going to use these kind. Like if I'm working with the modular stuff, or say breathing voltages, my limitation was, I'm going to use only analog modular synth stuff. Well, and the Minimoog. There's some Minimoog in it, and I've actually got the Minimoog modified so I can tie it into the modular stuff. And uh, I mean, I, once it's in the computer, I'll, I'm free to do whatever I want in there. So I, I do the, my reverbs all in the computer and delays are in the re- computer. There's some remodulation. There's some flanging. I'm using plugins in the computer, mm-hmm. you know, once I get to the point of construction. But um, the limitation was only the analog modular stuff. I might feel at some point, oh, geez, I just want to use this digital synth for a minute just to do this chord. No, 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 no. Just stay with the limitation of that stuff. And... Um, it started out with I wanted to do the stuff with these long envelopes, and it kind of wasn't really working the way I wanted it to. I was generating a bunch of material, and I kept finding stuff that I liked, and I finally just stopped and said, I've got a bunch of this material. Now I'm going to just kind of go back and listen to it on the computer and see what's here, and then I'm going to work with that material. I'm not going to bring in new material. I'm not going to now come back and change it. I, I generated all of this stuff. I'm going to use this to make the piece. Mm-hmm. So that's the limitation in that case. I mean, I've done things that are that are much more limited, you know. Like Dick and Don. Dick and Don. Dick I Chaney. like that one. Yeah. <laughs> Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld's speech fragments, and uh, yeah, that was limited. I got very tired of their voices, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a cool piece. From the very beginning, I cannot predict with certainty how soon this world will. No, 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 no,
in that piece, what are you doing with their voices? What are some examples of um, effects you well, use? The, you'll hear, uh, of course, editing. You're chopping it all up and doing things with it. Then other things are stretching it. The president of the United States. Even if we set aside these inconsistencies and changing rationales, at least this much is clear. Sometimes extreme, extreme time stretching which creates all kinds of effects where the computer's trying to trying to stay with the pitches of because it's thinking musically mm-hmm. and it can't and so you start to get random melodies that'll start to play where it's because it's trying to lock into the voice and it can't Or obviously sped up, another thing you do. You can also do spectral um, manipulations where you're altering. Um, there's a plug-in, there's, or there's a thing in the software where you can say, okay, change the pitch or change the speed independent of each other, or change the overtones. So sometime I might lower the pitch way down and then turn the overtones way up. Mm-hmm. And so you get these really odd sort of uh, quality of the, to their voice. And then there's things like, you know, obvious reverb, delay, flanging, mm-hmm. uh, chorusing, you know, all those sort of, you know, affecty sort of things that, that are generally available. Ring modulation, which I always love. Yeah. So things like that. Well, like in that one, how you, I I think you kind of like make them more human in a way, in the way you edited it, so you hear some more of their natural human ums. Uh, Look, um, the there there, we we one has to say that. they, if you think about it, the the question you ask, however, is not a question I can answer. Would wait want to wait until uh, they were in um, what do you call it stability? But then, towards the end, they become these monsters, yeah. almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it gets super... really mutated into that long section uh, we're talking about in this piece, where eventually it's just all this. Uh, it's like it's bending down and some bending up. It's all these elongated big chords of that, and it's all Donald Rumsfeld's us because he would go well, uh, like that. Well, uh, you have to understand, and so you have these us that were bending down, and so I took the nicest ones I could get, and then I super stretched them. And I'll change the pitches and mm-hmm. you know, shifted them way low and stuff like that, and you get these really build up these chords of the of the big crowds of ah. Uh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and out of all of that 
then this really straight on voice comes in at the end you know mm-hmm. uh well uh, and then i added extra uhs and stuff into it um uh we sh- shouldn't have done that I think. yeah what's his <laughs> yeah. i think it was something like uh, if you're in a hole yeah well, you if you're in a stop hole digging. You stop digging yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 you say the first rule if you're in a hole is to stop digging and i wish i had done that so how much of that was you, were you thinking about like this as a political message piece versus just like sound art piece both for sure always first art sound art thing but that's the only piece i ever made that's got particular extra musical content is obviously a political statement. Sure. And it's, um, I did an element that's got a little George Bush in it, but it's much more playful and mm-hmm. it's part of with a bunch of other stuff. We had to do America. We had to do family. We still haven't figured it out completely. America. We still haven't figured it out and these are sort of like international criminals. Whether or not Osama bin Laden is alive or not, whether or not complicated Yeah, that one is really fun. That's the very first fragment piece I ever did, where I'm building music from fragments. I was so concerned about using other people's material. I'm building something from other people's material. There's all this Herbie Hancock and all that. But I was editing it so much. I was editing that stuff that sounds like like crazy drumming and stuff. It's a little bit crazy because I've edited it so much. Um, I think now, I mean, now I'm, I'm not worried about that as much. I would be more willing to say, oh, yeah, there's three bars. That's perfect. But that I don't want to change. You know, I would mm-hmm. just leave it. But there's some cool things in there. I really like there's a thing where there's two, there's these long melodies of uh, Russian folk singing in it. And it's actually the same guy. He's singing two verses. And it's really free, so it doesn't, it's not in a strict meter. So I have them both going at the same time. I was not didn't have enough limitation, I think, in that piece. It's kind of like a lot of things going on, but it was a watershed for me. I mean, that was my first fragment piece. I thought about it for years, and I was just really of two minds about how I felt about the idea of even doing it. And once I did that, then I realized, oh, man, you can really make something. I don't feel like I'm ripping anybody off. I mean, I'm really changing this dramatically, and I'm making something new. And... uh the next one I did was the Chrono String Quartet one, where my limitation was to take things off only three Chrono String Quartet recordings. Joan, the cellist from back, and she's no longer with them, she was in town, and I played her that, and she thought that she was, there were things she was saying, oh, that's a whole phrase from this piece. I said, no, you should see it in the computer. It's completely constructed of a bunch of layers, and you know, hmm. but you can make it so that it sounds like it's played, you know? Yeah. Even her, 
the cellist. She ah. from Kronos. She wasn't getting that it was constructed. So for me, what's happened is the worlds of digital audio editing and music composition have completely merged. So my compositional process now is digital audio editing and uh, I'm creating by editing. And it's also merging the worlds of the performance and the composition, manipulation of material, musical materials. It's all one it's all one integrated process. The downside is you can't do it live. Yeah. <laughs> you end up with something that's theoretically possible. You can make a transcription, but it's kind of pointless. I like that one you did for the Zeitgeist 30-year yeah, anniversary. That, yeah. yeah. That's cool. You, so you asked them to say what good music is to them. Basically. Yeah. All right. Like, then, what is the difference between when music is really working, it's hard to even say this right, but it's like if you have the same piece of music played by this, even by the same people or by you two different times and the one time it's perfect and it's right, it's everything you got, all your articulation and dynamics and it just sounded really good and you really felt the material and it seemed really, really good and then you play it another time and your hair goes up on it and it's just really feeling it. And it's really hard to quantify the difference. Um, you can listen to those two recordings, and there's nothing wrong with the one that's not on fire, but there's one that's on fire, and it's it's uh, really hard to say what that difference is. Anyway, I, was asking, I had some more elegant way of asking that question. They know what that is, because they're good performers, and so they all had something to say about it. And I didn't have a title until the first two words out of Pat O'Keefe's mouth were, it's ineffable. And so that's why I called it ineffable, because that's really true. You know. You can't describe it. What I like why. about that piece is that you don't the question is never presented. All all you're hearing are their responses to that question. It's ineffable. <laughs> It's like we're all feeding this locus of energy. If I'm able to forget about myself. Yeah. It's when we all feed into something collectively. Yeah, you know, again, I wish that we could twice. bottle it. And, yeah. Know, just, when I hear it, I know it. Have it for every performance. Childlike. <laughs> we know it in the moment when we're in it. You know it. I don't know. And you know when it's not there. I wish that it could happen all the time, every single day. That, no, that kind of being in the moment thing. Yeah. What would your answer be to that? That's what I call that transcendental musicality. You know, it's you transcend the material. It's not. I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, fluffy, you know, over spiritual about it. It's just I've experienced it as a performer. To, you know, you play the same thing twice, and one time you're really feeling it. It's this thing about something about how you are feeling the material. I think it's tied very much to rhythm, or not even rhythm in the sense of what what are the actual rhythms. It's not that. It's where articulations are falling in time. If you were to really, 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 really break it down, but you can't approach it that way. It's that's I think a thing that would be possible to quantify, but I don't think it's not reproducible by thinking of it that way. The way you get to that 
is to really feel the material and be expressive when you're playing. And so now when I work with stuff with fragments, I'm encountering that. I'm trying to get fragments with feeling in them. But when I construct the piece, I'm, I'm constructing a new performance because it's so broken down. It's the smallest adjustments of time. And you're selecting small bits and you're using the arrow keys on the keyboard and just click, one click, two clicks, listen through it again. Did that feel right? And you'd go back and one click back the other way, go back, play it in context. And there'll be a point where it feels, it feels correct. It's these real subtle timing things. That's interesting that you think of that way with your um, music editing because I think a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. They they would think that Just make once, it accurate. once mm -hmm. you start making yeah. Yeah, yeah once you start making edits in the computer, you're like killing the performance value yeah. or like doing you can yeah, and it happens. But it's not a thing about making it accurate. It's a thing about making it feel right. You know, take a, if it's an accident, that's an error that feels good, and you leave it in. You know, you want those. It's not about getting all the errors out. It's about getting it to feel right. In the end, that's all it is. You know, so and you can you could have never convinced me that that was possible with editing. You could have never convinced me of that, and I would completely understand if nobody believes me. I'm saying that. <laughs> But if you listen to a piece, like listen to Incidental, you know, and that's like a six movement thing and it's very carefully, carefully, carefully constructed. A lot of that stuff that sounds like you're hearing a sense of ensemble between people, they weren't even in the same room. They weren't hearing each other at all. So you had people record their parts separately with just graphic instructions from you mostly? Uh, or? Mostly. There's some of the string stuff, there's conventional notation. Uh, other than that, it's all either verbal instruction or graphic notation. Uh, the drummer, we gave him a click because we, we wanted certain things in certain tempos. And we actually would turn the click off after he got going. So, did you With that one, did you have a whole vision beforehand or did it come like through composed? style through composed, highly all my stuff's highly highly through composed so it's more like i knew i wanted to work with uh, that kind of a palette of these instruments and people that i knew and stuff so i, I had all this material probably way too much material i recorded all of this stuff it's just weeks and months of editing and then um building the piece that took a long long time but kind of as i got into it then i realized how many movements i think i started out thinking it would be three movements it ended up being six movements I could have made it 10 movements. I got so much wonderful material from people, you know, but um, this music is the purest expression of myself, of anything I've ever done. This fragment stuff and working the super through composed method. I mean, I'm an old fart. You know, I've done, I've worked in a lot of styles and really highly conceptual things and all, you know, classically trained composer plus self-taught before that. I've done all kinds of different stuff. Spent a lot of time in the more conceptual things where I really love it as an idea, and I ultimately didn't like how it sounded. And I started to write 
this really through composed way. It's the old my, the way I did when I was a young person, and that's the thing that got to my essence more. It's just mm-hmm. as I'm building it, it's very much improvisational. I start it. I try to get some meaningful limitations from the beginning. But then as I start to build it, I get a beginning that I like, you know. And once I really get a beginning that I really feel good about, I'll listen through that. And I'm building solid recordings. Then I'll listen to what is the next thing? What is just the very next thing? And I'll try to do just that. And I just, when I was still writing it out in a conventional dotation, I'd do the same thing in writing. I would just, you know, I'm trying to hear it in my head, but I'm playing a little bit on the piano and I'm, you know, as good as I can. And I'm hearing what is the next thing, and I would try to just write the next thing. And then I found all the form and all the organic through line and all that all just takes care of itself. If I wouldn't think, well, this is not allegro former, it's going to be a few. I mean, it's not going to be like that. But it's going to be logical. It's going to actually have coherence. It's going to have, it'll end up having structure and form and all the things that are part of my whole musical background. Stuff like that will just flow into it naturally. In fact, I'm resistant. If I feel like I'm going to go, well, now I should really bring back that other material. I'm at this point in the piece. Well, it would make complete sense to do the the A prime material now. We've mm. come back to, and I'm really, really resistant to that because now I'm just doing something that makes sense, and it can be satisfying, and then sometimes it's okay, but I have to go. Well, yeah, that will sound okay, but. Is that really what you really would feel best about there? Mm-hmm. And really second-guess it. Any kind of bringing back of material. But sometimes it's appropriate to do it. But I'm, mm-hmm. I don't want a self-conscious formalism. Any kind of formalism is just organic. It's coming from what feels right to me in yeah. the piece only. Well, it's kind of, when I've heard your pieces, I kind of think of it like a sound environment. Like mm-hmm. if... If you were just in this environment, would there be a tree here or a lake here? I don't know. That's mm-hmm. a weird way sure. of saying it. But, like, yeah, if it was too structured, it would seem, yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't yep. want anything like that. <laughs> You know, or like that on a larger form, you know, if it starts to feel like, okay, now we're in the, my brain, I'll do that. I'm listening to pieces. I'll go, oh, okay, now we're, okay, this is the variation and now we're into this. You know, if it's a great performance, you know, it's, then uh, it's fine, you know, mm-hmm. but, and that, that's music's all fine. And then all the music's all good. I don't mean to tear anybody <laughs> else's music down, but for me, for, I think what art should be is a really should be very personal. If it's just art and it's not for commerce. I do work for a living, so I'll, I write music for people. For I do jobs and stuff. I'm, I'll write what they want. I'll, you know, I'll still make it a, as beautiful and artistic as I can. But um, if it's just for me, if I'm the client, if I'm writing my own personal art music, I want to just write what what is the what feels right to me from moment to moment, all the way through the piece. I thought it was interesting reading about when you did the the basketball scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like how that kind of changed your Yeah, that was the last conceptual thing. Yeah. Yeah. So could you explain what that was? So my limitation there was instrumentation was basketballs and referee whistles and human voice to some extent. So different movements. And there's like the one that's a synchronized passing movement. It's really fun to watch. Yeah. Really hard to do. They were like at about a 50-50% ratio of making it through that. 
at the time of the performance at the Walker. And I thought we had to have work out a, a train wreck recovery mechanisms, you know, like if something goes south, here's how we get out of it. But they made it through that in the performance. And each, all the movements would fit on a single page. So it's not conventional notation. It's all a special notation system of my own. And um, the idea was it would be printed on people's shirts, and then you would read it off each other's shirts. But ultimately, that was just, it, we did it, but you can't really read them. And it, it's, yeah, they end up memorizing it. But um, the piece starts with the, they're off stage completely, dribbling. And everybody's read the program, oh, brought basketball scenarios. Mm-hmm. So they start to hear this offstage dribbling. And then someone blows a referee with so real short, and then one ball rolls out on the stage. And the guy runs out there and gets it, and he dribbles back, and then you all start dribbling again all off stage, and then and one ball rolls out. And the guy comes out, gets it, bounces it off. So it's theatrical, you know, and then, then the, the third time, he all the balls roll out. <laughs> so you establish the expectation and you break the expectation. It was really fun, you know, people really liked it a lot. But, you know, at the end of the day, when I listened to the recording of this whole piece, I just didn't like how it sounded. I didn't like it as music to listen to. I thought it was really interesting. It was full of interesting little compositional conceits, but I didn't like it as a piece, as something to listen to. And so then the very next piece I wrote was for Zeitgeist, and then I really liked that piece a lot. And that, that started, I got me back to the old ways to write as a kid through composition. Of course, now it's informed by a whole life of, you know, music education and, and doing a lot of different things. But it's trusting your instinct. It's trusting your, uh, you know, I, I'm a musical guy, you know. So, I mean, we all have our talents. And I know this is, well, I, I'm untalented in many ways, but I'm, I have innate musicality in me, or I'm a musical person. I'm a composer by nature. It's just in me. I mean, for me, all I'm trying to do is filter it out. I could music is constantly coming out of me. It can be. I'm all I'm trying to is limit it in some way so that it makes some kind of sense. That's not like bragging. I mean, it's just I'm. I'm we're all born with weird things like that. That sounds to be mine. But this method of working. Um, it just becomes so personal, so deeply personal. It's hard to separate myself from it in a way. It's my best, it's the work I like. It's, I mean, it's my mature work. It's, I think it's really me. And um, when I would get compliments about it, it was really, really strange because it, it just feels really, really weird to get a compliment about it. You know, I'm Or glad, a criticism. <laughs> or a criticism, that's easier to take. Because I'm extremely critical of it. So I want to hear criticism. But uh, when someone does connect to it and they really, I can tell that they get it and they really like it, that's a good thing, I guess. But it just feels really, really strange in a way I can't articulate. Hmm. Is it the fact that you've thought of it as your own personal spiritual experience and then like having it other people kind of grabbing onto that it's nothing that obviously you know tangible that you could say like it like that i i really don't know how to put it in words i'm not to criticize your attempt there that's fine (laughs) but it's not it's not something like that it's that just makes me feel really weird (laughs) i can't really describe why Hmm. it's uh, good it's i'm glad that people like it you know but i have to when i make it i have to be so 
not thinking about that, you know, about other people liking it. I'm really trying to make it something that I know that I like, beyond like. I mean, I feel like it is me, like it's perfect in a sense. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm perfect, but um, like yeah. there was one movement in, in Incidental that was the really dark one. Oh, that was hard to work on because I had to keep going into that. It's just, yeah, it's just a crazy one. And a piece would kind of keep starting to become nicer. I said, no, throw all of that away. And I try to get back to having that more edgy energy all mm-hmm. through it so that it, because that's, I wanted that movement to be kind of that way. And that was hard to work on because oh, every time I had to go to work, I'd oh God, I got to work on that now. Because you'd have to just immerse yourself emotionally into that space again. Mike, I was kind of thinking if you'd be up for it, it'd be kind of cool to hear your system mm-hmm. a little bit. Do you want to hear? Want me to make a patch, or do you want to hear something that was done on that? Well, I think it'd be really cool to see you, you try <laughs> you making a patch. Some. Okay. It doesn't uh, have to be well, obviously finished. Well, it'd be a little finished, tutorial on. Yeah. yeah play a, a, I'll show you a little process of pulling something together real basically and yeah okay so i'm standing here at the modular stuff i just turn everything on first thing i'm doing i have uh oh boy but it's so hard to talk about this if people don't know what the stuff is yeah voltage quantizer okay turning on a bunch of of these uh pitch options so that means uh there's a voltage quantizer that's going to make the pitches all fall into an actual scale in this case all 12 pitches so it won't be some microtonal thing in between. Hmm. The sequencer is the thing that plays a bunch of notes. Uh, it has eight uh, notes that it can play, or eight voltages, which we are, in this case, making into pitches. I'm going to have them play in a random order. And so that is set, and then we're triggering. So all those triggers, like, there's the voltages, uh, so the different pitches, but then it needs to trigger them in time. So clicking, you know, they're going to happen at a certain time. So I've got a separate trigger output that is being split and run into two envelope generators. So one is going to affect the filter, one is going to affect the amplitude or through an amplifier. So let's see. So the sequence is running. Okay. First thing is I don't like what the filter's doing. Right now, our, our sound is a rectangle. Doesn't sound very rectangular to me. Going less distance between the notes. I mean, the mm. pitch is more uh, 
smaller range of voltage. That's a high range of voltage. Mm. Less range of voltage. So now it's kind of doing okay. So I'll speed it up a little bit. Oh, that's right, we're hearing this guy. That's part of it. We're hearing the ring modulator. That's why, to me, it doesn't sound like a rectangle. Okay. Going through a sawtooth. I'm playing with the filter. Envelope generator. Envelope generator that affects the filter. So how quick do I want it to close? How far do I want it to close? Gotta go pretty quick. I like this octave range, it can come up. Okay. The envelope generator for the volume is, like if I slow the speed down, that's coming in slow. And I can make it hold. Now it's all connected. So if that's faster, it'll feel it's all filling in all the space in between the notes. Right? So really short. hearing different waveforms. Okay, so now let's make it go random. Now it's the same pitches but in a random order. So this is just a real, real basic thing. The thing that's not basic is the, the boat frequency shifter that it's running into. I mean, it was originally built to do actual normal frequency shifting, but what's fun is to do stuff that's not normal frequency shifting. Yeah. That's sort of ring modulatory effects. What, it, what does it sound like without that? Um, so you just go, have to unplug it. So we've do, interrupted the flow to the ring modulator, and we're going to plug it in where the ring modulator is coming back in. It's right there. So that's without it. So much more of a pure tone. Mm -hmm. Now you can really hear the mode better. You can really hear the clarity of that. So no reverb or anything. So that's a that's a sawtooth. So now the difference between that is a rectangle. And here's a triangle. Here's a sign that's similar.
octaves changing the range of the of the sequencer. Thanks a lot, Mike, for talking with me here. Well, thanks. Thanks for showing an interest. Yeah. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Mike Olson. If you heard any music you liked in this episode, visit composerquest.com modular to check the show notes. Or you can just browse through Mike's music at mikeolsonmusic.com. And that's O-L-S-O-N. I'll leave you now with more of Mike's beautiful piece, Breathing Voltages. 